This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by Mook Delivery, bringing you the food you love. Mook Delivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the result, you'll always be winning with Mook Delivery. So the only thing left to say is, Georgie, check for Dadsy. You in? Order now on the McDonald's app, and you can also get rewards points delivered too. So the ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. <laughs> only via app at participating restaurants. 18 plus rewards registration required. Points only on menu items. Delivery free in terms supply. See mcdonalds.com. Leicester City have a penalty kick in the sixth minute of injury time. Injury time, injury time. Look out, takes, Almunia saves, knock out, follows in, Almunia saves again. And now Wapner on the counter attack. Forestieri. Oh, I don't believe this. Here's Hawk. Dini! I do not believe what I've just seen. Troy Dini has scored from a Leicester penalty that was saved by Almunia. Do not scratch your eyes. Do not scratch your eyes. Do not scratch your eyes. Hello, you're listening to the Do Not Scratch Your Eyes podcast. I'm Justin. And I'm Peter. And joining us is football reporter Simon Michelson. Hello, how are you? Good afternoon, Justin and Pete. Great to see you. Yeah, I'm fine, thanks. A bit of withdrawal symptoms this weekend, obviously with Watford not playing. We did have the internationals, but you can't beat weekends when Watford are in action can you really absolutely international football who needs it honestly (laughs) anyway enough of such nonsense because we don't need to talk about international football here because the really interesting thing here which absolutely caught our eye is Simon you have got a book coming out at the start of October detailing a lot of your work and coming across an awful lot of very interesting characters within the realms of football as a radio and sports reporter is that correct that is correct. You've got that spot on, Pete. Yeah, for 15 years, I worked as a football reporter, starting off in 1989 with, I think, probably the way a lot of people get into it is working for hospital radio. And in my case, it was Charing Cross Hospital Radio. I luckily wandered into it, really. I've never had an ambition to become a football reporter. I'm a football supporter, first and foremost. But at the time, in 1989, I was living in North Kensington in a shared flat. I can actually trace me moving into this flat back to, to, to 1977 when I went traveling to Morocco. Um, the story of what happened in Morocco is in the book. It's, it's, a, long, it's a long story. I go into it in, in great detail. So the book covers this mysterious tale in Morocco and basically all of this, which takes you to eventually a flat in Kensington. How does a flat yeah. in Kensington lead you into the world of football and sports reporting then in the late 80s? Because I'm, I'm intrigued by this. I was living in the flat with a girl called Angela and she used to buy Time Out, the London Listings magazine. Again, prior to the internet, essential reading. Absolutely needing to know what's going on. Absolutely. 
Yeah, fantastic magazine. Everything you could possibly want to know about what was happening in London was in that magazine. But she was an avid reader. She used to read every word. And in the sports board section, there was an advert for people to work on hospital radio as football reporters. So she knew I was into football, told me about it, said, oh, you should go for that. I couldn't think of a reason why not to go for it. And it turned out that it was Charing Cross Hospital Radio. And I had no previous experience of football reporting. Mike Emery, who was the main man there, he said, come to the hospital radio studio on Saturday and we'll show you how it all works. So I went down there and it was the opening day of the 1989-90 season. And what had fired my imagination, the end of the previous season anyway, it was the famous match where Arsenal went to Liverpool and won 2-0. Uh-huh. Yep. And I'd watched that in the pub and I just couldn't believe it. It was one of those gobsmacking events when they had to win by two clear goals and they won by goal scored in the end Michael Thomas and um, exactly it's up for grabs yeah here's Thomas right at the end and what I say in the book is as well as the pictures that I'd seen on TV it was the commentary of Brian Moore I love listening to commentaries on the radio because you you create the pictures yourself mm. but the original one in my life was Brian Moore, when I lived in Singapore for three years, came back in 1968. So I had all these new things in England to get into. One mm-hmm. of them was the big match. Of course which was presented by Brian Moore, and he was also the main commentator. And what he did, and also Jonathan Pierce, who I came to work with at Capital Gold Sport, because right. he was the main commentator, presenter, driving force, inspiration, and, uh, and everything. Lots of commentators form me, educate me, amuse me, entertain me. But these two, Brian Moore and Jonathan Pierce, actually fired my enthusiasm for football. They've just got, they had something extra. My, my first day at Charing Cross hospital radio i just sat there and watched the program and then at the end of when all the matches had finished mike emery invited me into the studio and then he did a live interview with trevor francis who at the time was the manager of queens park rangers and i was listening to it on headphones and somehow it was different it was almost as though i'd seen trevor francis play as a 16 year old player for birmingham city i'd seen him score against watford and it was almost as as though he was talking to me direct. But what happened was there was an incident when he was manager of QPR where he fined Martin Allen for missing a match because he'd attended the birth of his child. And Trevor Francis got criticised for that. Mike didn't actually ask him directly about that incident, but he did ask him a question about his management style, which was a sort of coded Mm -hmm. way of asking him about it. And Trevor Francis said, I won't be asking the players to do anything I didn't have to do as a player. If the players do what I tell them, then everything will be fine. And I thought, that's a little bit simplistic. Life doesn't really work like that. And I started to chuckle. And Mike Emery waved his hand at me to get me to quieten down. And I realized I was on my first day, I'd been bang out of order. But what that made me realize was that if I was going to learn anything from football people, I had to approach them with humility. And there's a golden rule of broadcasting, which is always respect your guest. Yeah. I'd broken that on, on my first day, but just through inexperience and sort of naivety, really not, not knowing the ropes. So you learn lessons in life. And that was a very good lesson. One of the great things about being a reporter was that up to that point, I'd had sort of two main points of contact with footballers. One was when we'd lived in Singapore in the 1960s. We'd gone to see a game between Southampton and Leicester, and it was a great game. It was a tool draw. 
And and in goal for Leicester was a young Banks. Peter Shilton. Oh, Peter Shilton. Oh, there you go. Banks had just gone. So after the game, I'd got on to, we passed the Southampton team coach. and They, they were sitting there in, in their kit, soaking with, with sweat because obviously playing in the humidity of Singapore, they'd sweated bucket. And the door was open and I just, without even thinking about it, I just got on the coach. And, and got autographed from the players. Right. And what struck me, guys, was every other word was an expletive. Of course. And I was, what was I, about 12 at the time? And to me, that that made quite an impression on me. I thought, flipping out. I'll bet you I, didn't. <laughs> but that's just the way they spoke. Oh, it is. The language of the dressing room is every other word is absolutely, nobody ever does anything, they can do something. It's just the way it is. I know this. I don't think it's changed. Nope, not at all. Not one of those years. One form of contact. The other one was after Watford home games, I used to wait outside the players' entrance and get autographs that way. And what sort of era are we talking about from the Watford perspective there when you're waiting outside? The first game was 31st of August 1968, which was Watford nil Stockport 1. Before I'd gone to Singapore, we went in 1965. I first got into football. It's quite interesting because I think the way a lot of people get into it is they get it passed down through their family. It comes down through Mm -hmm. the generations. Sometimes, although I think maybe some kids support a different team to wind up their dad or something like that. But in my case, I was brought into a middle-class family and my dad was into rugby. Although he never tried to discourage my love of football, he didn't exactly encourage it either and I'd first got into it when I was about five or six and Spurs won the double with that amazing team of Danny Blanchflower, Dave Mackay, Bobby Smith, John White and all that lot incredible team and I wanted my dad to take me to see them play but he thought it was too much of a trek to go up to London and he used to say I'll take you to Watford. Quite right too. (laughs) (laughs) There's something to be said for rugby supporting fathers in that case There there hasn't been anything hitherto but now we found it. But at that age, Pete, Watford was like a non-league team. Yeah, absolutely. They were not on my radar. I'd been struck by the glamour and the achievements of Spurs. So I, I thought, but who are they? Now, something changed. When I was in Singapore, something changed during those three years. If you're away for, for three years, you, you start to miss things and you start to decide what you're going to do when you come back. Mm-hmm. I missed like ordinary things like the, the sweets that you could buy in the sweet shop in England and even the grass because the grass in Singapore was really coarse and not the sort of lush, lovely green grass that we have over here. Interesting that you miss the things that are quite sensual, the smell and the taste and the visceral stuff. Yeah, and also the seasons, because it was just hot all year round in Singapore. The only season we had was the rainy season when it just poured with rain, which we used to enjoy because the playing fields would be under about two or three feet of water and we'd just use it as a sort of paddling pool. And that that was a good laugh. But the other thing I decided was when I got back from Singapore, I was going to go to Watford. And I think the the appeal of it was that I could go with a mate without any parental accompaniment. So it would be like a rite of passage 
freedom and adventure and we could do it on our own we could strike out on our own it's yours isn't it it's it doesn't belong to anybody the experience is dictated to by you absolutely and in those those days of course and for many decades after but not anymore you could just decide on the morning that you were going to turn up put your pennies together throw them in at the turnstile and in you go none of none of this having to try to uh, locate tickets nonsense that was exactly yeah so that's what we did and i was you know immediately take taken by it it was like some sort of roman amphitheater i don't remember i remember jim fry at school the only goal of the game and i remember the watford's left back johnny williams oh, just yes. kicked the ball further than i've ever seen anyone kick a football i'll never underestimate the ability of a footballer who can kick a ball extremely hard tommy mooney we salute you i like yeah. that. you can have all your skills but if you run hard and kick a ball very hard it's very pleasing <laughs> to me that's what i say I was lucky that season because it turned out to be the most successful in Watford's history. I was going to ask, this is the Ken Furthy promotion season, presumably. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, title-winning season. And the players just became heroes. Stuart Scully and Keith Eddy, Barry Endine, Tom Wally, all the players from that era. And I do... There's a story in the book where after we've been promoted, a milestone is going to be the first goal we score in in the higher division. And we had to wait quite a while for it. And it turned out to be a penalty scored by Keith Eddy. Yeah, he took took all the penalties, didn't he? Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. Yeah, even when he was playing in the same team as Pele. Your Cosmos, yeah. He captained Pele and Beckenbauer. That's not bad for somebody who's playing at somewhere close to non-league, as Simon describes it there. Yeah, there you go. Excellent. Exactly, yeah. So when I went back to school, it was in the days when we had to write about what we'd done in the summer holidays. And I wrote about Keith Eddy's goal. A carefully crafted piece. I describe how the crowd went quiet to allow him maximum concentration. He puts the ball down on the spot, ball hits the back of the net, the crowd erupts and all that. And at the end of it, this essay, the teacher writes, this is not what you did in your summer holiday. And actually it was because my whole summer holiday was waiting for that moment. Mm. I was obsessed with Watford getting their first goal in, in, in this new level of football. But that, so well, that, it, was, it was my summer holiday, but that, she just didn't that, get it. But that poetical, lyrical description of what's going on that, again, is almost sensual in, in its wording, is that something at the time, you said you'd never thought about it, looking back on it, is that part of the genesis of getting towards sports, the sports reporting element of it? Because you have to be a wordsmith, you have to describe sometimes very quickly because, and we, I, I want to get onto this subtle distinction because I mistakenly yeah. used the word commentator, you said sports reporting. Ah, so let's get an understanding of that and what the different, the differential kind of skill sets are that makes Jonathan Pierce so good both on radio but also one of the, the very few that then successfully made the jump to TV as a commentator because yeah. that's a bit of a different skill set. What would you say were your strengths in terms of the sports reporting part? What you have to do, yeah, on that, just quickly on that TV oh. thing, I actually think TV is a, is a lot harder than radio because the viewer can see what's happening. Mm-hmm. So what you've got to do is you've got to add value. You've got to add to the pictures. And I'm quite hard on TV commentators when they tell me, oh, he's hit the post. Actually, Actually, I can see that. I know he's hit the post because I'm looking at the pictures, whereas on the radio you can say that and it's fine. The thing, the great thing about football reporting is that you look at the game in a different way. You have to, you have a notebook, so you're making notes as you go along. When I first started out, 
as well as doing hospital radio, the guys at Charing Cross used to run an agency called Sportsbox, and that was commercial. And they used to do games for local radio stations whose team was playing in London. Could be Plymouth Sound, it could be Signal Radio in Stoke, it could be a station or BRMB in the Midlands, someone like that. Okay. And because they weren't, they didn't have the budget to send a reporter, we would cover the game for them. So you networked sort of thing across the various different local regionals. So yeah. And on those occasions, I was often the main game on that station. If it was Plymouth Sound and I was covering Plymouth Argyle, that would be the main game. So I my reports were a lot longer. I had to do about three to two minute reports each half, every sort of 10 or so minutes and then a half time report. And they had to be two minutes each. So that's demanding in a different sense in that you go to, say, Lake Orient, Plymouth, you might not have a shot on target until the 10th minute. So when I was doing these gigs for these stations like Plymouth Sound, it was one skill set having to, if you like, blag it for two minutes when not a lot had happened in the game. But then when I got to Capital Gold Sport, it was a completely different kettle of fish because Jonathan Pierce would be commentating on the main game. They'd have all these other top reporters so my input was no no longer than 30 seconds. So what you've got to do is you've got to get the salient points. And quite often I found a game can switch on a single moment, maybe the opening goal or, so, or sometimes you feel like a team's on top and then they'll have an attempt on goal, but there'll be an amazing block. And after that, they lose their momentum. So you've got, you watch a game completely differently. So would you, would you know how long you had to give for each piece? And um, might you have, for example, you might be covering, for example, as you say, Plymouth, who for Plymouth Sound, you might need to give three lots of reports in a half, but also for Capital Gold Sport, depending on who they're playing for, or a another, you might need to just give a two-minute... That must be a skill set in itself to be able to talk for a preset period of time, expanding and contracting, depending on who you're talking to and how long is available. How difficult was that when you first started doing it? And how? Did, when did the kind of penny drop in terms of your improvement over time on that? The way I looked at it was you could think, oh, 30 seconds, what can I possibly say in 30 seconds? But I turned it on his head and said, let's see how much I can pack into 30 seconds. Cool. And if you use your words economically in the right way, you, I think you can convey the flavour of a game. We had a number of, we had different types of report. You have, you do your preview, you do your team news, and then you do reports during the game. In my case, usually when there's a goal, unless I'm doing the Premier League club and they'll come for an update. Okay. And then you do your full-time report, which is quite factual. You say what's happened in the game, when it happened, and then about half an hour after that, you do what they, they call a considered report, which was, I used to quite like because it's, you can be a bit more flowery. You don't just have to talk about the game. You put it into context. You look at the wide, the wider picture, maybe. But the first game I ever did for Capital Gold Sport, it was similar to Charing Cross Hospital Radio. In the, I did Charing Cross and Sportswatch for a couple of seasons. And then by that time, I got almost addicted to it. It's, almost, it's a bit like a drug. Because you get this, you get this high at the end of the game, the adrenaline and, and all that sort of stuff, and being part of something as well, being part of a, a team that that puts on football matches. So I thought I've got to find a way of continuing to do this. So I sent the tape to Capital, and very quickly Jonathan Pierce phoned me up, said, "We'll take you on, but you've got to speed up your delivery." 
which I wasn't surprised at at all because, and I go into this in the in the book, I'm unofficially the, the third slowest person in the world. Yeah. Are, are numbers one and two revealed in the book by any chance? They are. They are. They're a couple, they're a couple of mates of mine. Yeah, they're even slower than I. Than I than right. Is that, a, as you mentioned there, is that a considered, as you said, economical with your language? Uh, because I think something that some listeners won't get is the fact that this all predates the internet. And there was a time when supporting, for example, Watford and trying to find out what the score was at Sunderland and were we playing well or were we not basically hung on listening to your local radio or your capital gold or your something and waiting for the occasional shout outs that came back and in that kind of two minutes you were you you were hung on it yeah like some kind of crack addict waiting to find out what was going on that and watching CFAX which believe it or not wasn't as rewarding an experience as it makes it sound. It was basically just sitting there watching the thing click over and find out what the score was or hadn't changed. Hi, this is Derek Payne, and you are listening to Do Not Scratch Your Eyes podcast. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Away days are great, but there's nothing quite like playing at home. The same goes for McDonald's. Maximize your home ground advantage with McDelivery. You in... Order now on the McDonald's app. At participating restaurants, 18 plus, serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. That vitality that you had to everybody, did you get an appreciation or feedback from fans either liking what you said or saying, come on, Simon, if you'd have, if you'd have liked us, you'd have given us a better result? There's a guy you probably know him called Ian Grant. Yeah, no, I went to school with him. I was in the same year as him at both juniors and senior school. Yeah. I, yeah, I contributed to a book called You Are My Watford about, I don't know, 23 years ago, something like that. And he was heavily involved in that. And I met him. And as you said, I don't know if he's, I think he's still down there in Brighton. He is, I think, Hastings, because he's following Hastings, Hastings quite a lot. And he's back at right. Watford. And he also did with Matt Rosen the excellent Watford archive, which they took over from yeah. uh, obviously what was left with Trevor Jones and brought it back up. And he said to me, he used to tune in his radio and the reception might not be very good because where he was located yeah. in the country. And I was the only person giving him updates on Watford. And I used to think that just that one person appreciating what I do, that makes it all worthwhile. Mm. Hopefully he wasn't the only one and there, there were a few more like him. To go back to my first day at Capital. I could tell straight away that this is a different operation. This is Capital Radio, Capital yeah. Gold Sport. And we had a, an amazing producer, a guy called Pete Simmons. And the job he had to do was he had a great big mixing desk. We had about 12 reporters out at, at least at different grounds. And he had to push the right buttons, pull the right levers to make sure the right person was on, on air at the right time and that the sound quality was all good. So Pete gave me a voice test on the opening day and he said, oh, the guy's supposed to be doing Brentford hasn't turned up yet. He said, if he's not here by 1.30, we'll send you down there. And I laughed. I thought he was joking. At about quarter to two, I found myself on the way to Griffin Park Brilliant. with this big bag of broadcasting equipment, which was completely unfamiliar to me because 
they use more professional kit than I've been used to using. Yeah. Managed to get get a line connected to the studio by about quarter to three. The program had started at two. And I'm sitting there thinking, oh, it'd be, be quite good if I had a nice, quite uneventful match for my first <laughs> first oh, oh, boy, can we see a setup line coming a mile away here. <laughs> Go on then. Four, 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 three to Brentford. <laughs> you know, most size up. I was on and off air, hardly just a profusion of goals. But was that baptism of fire possibly the best thing you could have had? Because you're all too much, too much going on to have time to think and panic. Possibly, I'll take it. I'll take it as it comes. You've got it's sink or swim, really. You've got to be able to deal with whatever get whatever is thrown at you. So obviously, it was an exciting match, which makes it a lot easier. After a while, they found out that my Watford was my team. So basically you hadn't told them, but somehow you blag your way to getting the Watford gig then? What happened? They had a guy doing Watford called John Desborough who was good, but he left. And after that, I started being given Watford games, which was just fantastic. First of all, it was when Steve Perriman was manager. I did a long interview with him, which I put in the book. The thing is, he's a Spurs legend. He's not, obviously he's not a Watford legend, but he talks about Bill Nicholson and uh, and people like that and the managers that he played under. Also, what it was like being Watford manager at the time. The approach I took, guys, was I'm in an incredibly privileged position. I think what some reporters do, they go looking for a story. They try and trip managers up. They want them to come out with things that they can use as a sensational headline. Yeah. Maybe score a bit of an own goal and that will be their that will be their headline. I just looked at it that I'm in an incredibly privileged position because all these players and managers, it's part of their job basically to, to talk to reporters. I was more interested in them as people. What were they like? What made them tick? What's it like doing your job? Because it's such an incredibly difficult job. Where Supporters freely criticise managers and things like that, but do they really understand the constraints, what it's like? Apart from Watford, I actually came across people. I had lunch with Rodney Marsh on a Monday. Rodney Rodney Marsh has come up a number of times in the last few weeks, and Carl, who's who's not with us because he's on holiday, his mum had a bit of a penchant. For Rodney Marsh. Really? There you go. Tell, tell us what you can about Rodney Marsh, possibly Carl's dad. We we may have just started that rumour unnecessarily. I'll give you a line I used in the book. If James Bond had been a footballer, he would have been Rodney Marsh. He, and I remember him from the days of the big match. He, he scored what was known as a perfect hat-trick for QPR, yeah. right foot, left foot and a header. And, and he was fantastic. I went to a sports writer's dinner on the Capital Gold Sport table. One of the guests was Rodney Marsh. And I thought I'd just love to have the opportunity to talk to him. So I said, would you mind, Would you like to meet up for lunch sometime? He said, yeah, I'll do it. We, he just went along with it. And the subject we discussed was what's more important, the team or the individual? Right. And he had some really, as you might expect, Rodney being like one of the ultimate individual players, he had some strong views on that. And he meant, I didn't raise it, he mentioned the name Matt Letizier. Yeah. Now, Matt Letizier was probably, in, in all my time as a reporter, the individual player who made the most impact on me. I saw him play more than once, but in one particular game for Southampton against Crystal Palace, and he was just sublime. He's just an amazing player. 
And by by chance, he released a video of mainly a goals compilation called Unbelievable, which he promoted at HMV in Oxford Street. And I was asked by Capital Gold Sport if I would go along and um, interview Matt Letizier. Now, do you think I needed asking twice? No. He's one of the modern... Oh, OK. He's one, he's one so, of the modern equivalents, so of something that we've discussed with a number of people. So, for example, we had Derek Payne on from the mid-90s the other week, and he was right. a QPR fan, and he re- we referenced, obviously, Rodney Marsh and also Stan Bowles, yeah. all of these sort of players. And Letitia absolutely would be on the same would be on the same page as somebody who could be individually devastating, but also do the shift also for the team. But the team was built really around them. Is, is that the impression you got from, from Letitia at, at Southampton? Yeah, definitely. And he loved to play football off the cuff. And the way he said it was in the defensive third, you have to be disciplined and you have to be, you can't really deviate. But in the attacking third, that's where you need your off the cuff creativity, which is what he was obviously so brilliant at. Mid nineties, though, you're as you say, you've got you, you're working there, and you've spoken with with Steve Perryman there. Were you still covering Watford in and around the mid nineties when Glenn Roder had taken over? Because the player yeah. that I think is the equivalent, and you mentioned about the Tissier not not being played enough, not getting enough caps for England, etc. And I think people look back at the earlier period and would have said the same thing about Hoddle as well. Yeah. Not considered a work right. The player, and I appreciate I'm mentioning him in some really quite stately names here. What was your take when and on what Craig Ramage brought to Watford? Because he was of a similar ilk, but because of knee injuries, really, at a lower level. What were your thoughts? What, do you, what are your memories of that period? He features prominently in the book. Done. Because the season before I... In the summer of, I think it's... I might get my dates wrong. I think it was 1995. Jonathan Pierce phoned me up and said, do you want to cover Watford home and away next season? So obviously I said yes. Now, the previous season, Watford had finished seventh with Glenn Roder yes. as manager, who, by the way, is was an absolute top man. He was class. And so was Ray Lewington as well. I look at them a little bit similarly, real down-to-earth football men. So the pre- that previous season, Watford had finished seventh just outside the playoffs with Craig Ramage having the season of his career. And I just loved watching him play. Flamboyant, flair player at the top of his game. So then I must have been... Watford reporter co-occurring them home and away the next season. And I'm thinking, oh, great. Uh, I'm going to be covering a promotion season. We, we, we just missed out on the playoffs last season. Going to have Craig Ramage is going to repeat in the form of the previous season. It's all going to be fantastic. Of course, that was the season that Craig Ramage returned back from training overweight. Yep. I don't know the details of exactly what happened, but what happened... From my perspective was I turned up for the first game of the season and on the front page of the programme, there's a headline, Craig Ramage up and running for 1995-96 or whatever season it was with a picture of him on the front cover. And I thought, oh, that's a great start. My favourite player featured in a positive way on the front of the programme. So he didn't even feature. So only Watford could do this to me. So it just didn't happen that season, of course. We ended up being relegated. Glenn unfortunately lost his job. I used I actually stopped going to his press conference because I could see he was suffering. He'd run out of he'd run out of explanations. And then we lost 4-0 at Palace and that was it. But then of course 
as they say, every cloud has a silver lining and the dream team reappeared. Elton, who's interviewed in the book, actually the following week, we played Ipswich at home, yep. lost 3-2. Having been 2-0 up. Yeah. And then after the game, I just saw Elton standing in the tunnel. And amazingly, there was no one near him. He was just there on his own. There was no entourage. Because when I'd gone to visit Matt Letizia, he had his people with him. Mm-hmm. And it was like being ushered into the king of court, Matt, the court of King Matt. So I just went up to Elton and I said, are you okay to talk? No one had said, you can't talk to him. So he said, yeah. And he was brilliant, lucid, passionate, just as you'd, you'd expect, amusing. He said it would take a long time to turn around, and it, then it did. It didn't happen overnight. No. What happened was I took my scoop up to the press box. I told them in the studio that I'd just interviewed the most famous person they've ever had on Capital Gold Sport. Dave Clark was in that day. He said, oh, who's that? I said, Elton John. He said, I don't think so. We had Nelson Mandela on the program once. Ah. So, um, <laughs> so I think we have to give away when it comes to Nelson. Yeah, but in fairness, so, his comments about Watford versus Ipswich, I don't mean to be critical of Nelson Mandela, but he hardly knew anything about the subject at all. So there was a silver lining in the, in the cloud, and, and obviously that became by Watford standards, a very big story. And it led to me, the undoubted highlight of the book is is the playoff final win over Bolton Wanderers in May 1999, because normally what would happen on Captive Gold Sport was you'd have a load of matches going on all at the same time. And Watford would just be, yeah, not a big part. But on that particular day, it was the only game being played. It's at Wembley blew me away. Wembley has an extra dimension. And Jonathan was commentating. We had Billy Bond as our pundit. He really appreciated Tommy Mooney. He comes out with a very nice appreciation. And I thought Billy Bond was one of the great battlers of his generation. Mm. And he recognises a similar spirit in, in, in Tommy Mooney. And obviously the game went as well as you, I don't know, probably better than anyone could have expected with, with Nick Wright getting that overhead just before half-time. Yeah, Unbelievable. And, but also Alec Chamberlain, his first... 20-minute performance pretty much kept us in it. I mean, it was we all yeah. remember it as walking in feeling after the event that we all felt confident beforehand. I think in the first 15 minutes, I think I think I was up for a change of underwear at any point at that point. <laughs> but it was then a question of once that once we started to ease into it, it felt that much better. When you're the only game playing and you've got somebody, presumably you're covering the game as a commentary as well, or is are you as the radio station? So are you working as a commentary and then you're reporting around? How do you make that sort of thing work? I was there as the Watford reporter, the sort of Watford representative. Jonathan was, did, the, did the whole 90 minutes commentary. We had a bit, really good build-up hour. They asked me to do what's known as a Vox Pop, which is Voice of the People. So I went out and interviewed Watford supporters before the game. And there was, in a lovely way, I've interviewed, I won't say the name of the club, but I've interviewed supporters before games before. And they're almost, they're like a bit cocky. They're a bit arrogant. Oh, yeah, of course we'll win this sort of thing. Mm -hmm. With Watford supporters, it was just like a rock solid conviction. I think that's based on Graham Taylor being the the manager because Graham was stressing you go to Wembley to win. You don't go there to enjoy the occasion. That's not why you go there. So his focus was on winning the game. And I think that just transmitted to everyone, players, supporters. And there was that, just this lovely confidence that people had that, 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 that was realised. It was also surely the most cathartic of moments for GT 
doing doing it there at the site of his, at the hands of the newspapers especially, who absolutely tore him limb from limb, to do it in such an unfancied fashion with little old Watford at, at Wembley and sitting there and watching and looking at the community that he and Elton had helped build and cement previously that that was so cathartic did you get to talk to the great man at all after after or around the event i didn't do a one-on-one with him but i heard i was there for his press conference and this is another thing about reporters Mm -hmm. they just somehow had to get in a mention of what had happened when he'd been england manager something like oh does today wipe out the memories of what happened previously something i've got it exactly in the book yeah let's let the man enjoy this Right, why do you have to remind him about that? But this is what reporters are like. They they niggle away at, at, at managers hoping to get a reaction. And he just said, that's all in the past. I believe in today. We've got to enjoy today. And he was, he was clever enough not to believe what anyone said about him, whether they were praising him or they were having a go at him. And actually, when he became Watford manager again, after Kenny Jackett had that season, yeah. Personally, because I'm not a football manager, I almost couldn't believe it that he'd want to put his neck on the chopping block again because of potentially what can happen if you don't succeed. But he was a football man. He he wanted to do what he loved best and what he did best. It was really interesting because we interviewed Kenny Jacket and we talked about that season. I said it felt in hindsight, looking back at it, that it was a transitional season that GT, because GT was the general manager and he was sorting out everything else around takeover and getting the club to the point whereby suddenly it could make that next jump and suddenly you know kind of bringing in a player like a Ronnie Rosenthal into the third tier of football (laughs) that was a thing back-to-back promotions became a thing and what a man wonderful stuff well Simon the book is coming out on the 1st of October um, is it not but there's lots of stories about obviously we've touched on some Watford things and some Watford interviews but also uh, as you've already heard, some of the great and the good in, in, in football, people can pre-order it. Where can people come and pre-order the book, which is called? It's called The Man Who Shouts, and it's on the JMD Media website. And if you enter, there's a discount code. If you enter SHOUT20 into the discount code, you'll get a 20% discount. Super. We'll put a link to that in our socials and somewhere in the description on the podcast where we do that. I have no idea. That's the kind of technical stuff I leave up to Justin. Justin, that's technical stuff. I'm leaving it up to you. I'll, I'll deal with that. That's Excellent. Wonderful. So as, as a season ticket holder, then let's finish off then. Here we are, obviously, under Valerian Ishmael. What have been your first impressions of, uh, of the first few games of the season? I, I like the discipline he's instilled because I don't think you'd have you could you you have to have that cool. you can't have people turning up late for training what interests me is when a new head coach takes over how do they decide what formation they're going to play and are we getting the best use out of our players because obviously Valerian Ismail has decided to play 4-3-3 is that using our players in the best way for me we've lost Sara and Pedro who are our two creative players we we won't have a debate about what Sars contribution was over the last couple of seasons. But in terms of numbers, both he and Pedro were at the top of the list last season. So we have to find that again. For me, something I find most difficult in football, and this is where someone like Graham Taylor, when he went and picked up Nicky Wright and Alan Smart from Carlisle, Mm -hmm. 
I couldn't believe it because I'd seen Carlisle play and they hadn't even registered with me. I thought when I heard we were going to get a Carlisle player, I thought it was going to be Ian Stevens, who was their leading scorer. Now, GT goes out and gets Nick Wright and Alan Smart and they score the goals at Wembley that take us into the Premier League. So it's this ability to spot potential and I could do something with that player. For me, the player, and I think probably most Watford supporters would agree, with the most potential is Yasser Espria. The question is, how do you get the best out of him? For me, I would play a 4-2-3-1 and I'd have him in in the middle of the three. I say this... But I, my, my neck isn't on the block if it doesn't work. And it would be a big risk because of his age, because of his inexperience. But the other, the other angle is that we know that Gino's model is to get these gems from particularly South America, like Richarlison and Petro, develop them and then sell them for a lot of money. Now, we, we don't really, I don't anyway, know what goes on in Gino's head, but it wouldn't surprise me if he sees Aspria as the next in line on that sort of conveyor belt. He's already stated it, absolutely. Yeah. So he wants Aspria to do well. I don't like it when we sell our best players. I'd love to see Aspria in play for us in the Premier League, but uh, Gino might well be thinking, I want him to do well and then we'll sell him for 30, 40 million or to Brighton or whoever it is. For that to happen, he has to be playing regularly and he has to be playing in his best position. So having said that, the main requirement for me, guys, is that they give 100% effort on the pitch. I remember years ago, I saw an interview with Mick Channon right straight after a game had finished and he was puffing so much he could hardly speak. That's how I want my players to be when they've come off the pitch. And there, there was another, there used to be a sign up in the Birmingham training ground or something which read exhaustion is when you're too tired to be sick that and that's it you know you're a professional footballer you've you're trying to beat the opposition you've got to have something extra uh, and the, the minimum requirement and from my perspective I think we're, we're getting that this season is 100% effort whereas at times last season we didn't look so, Simon um, that is absolutely fantastic stuff to, to leave it with because I think we agree uh, exhaustion is when you're what was it, the word? Too tired to be sick. Too I like tired that. to be sick. I like that very much indeed. Guys, we will put all of the links to Simon's book. You can hear that there are a bundle of stories, many of which we haven't even got to go into today, um, from what is clearly a fine journey through football, certainly incorporating an awful lot of Watford from the gentleman there who sits in the rookery end to this day. Yes, absolutely fantastic. Thank you very much for joining us, Simon. Good luck with the book. And uh, we will speak to you soon, hopefully. You on. You on. What a way to finish. (laughs) Yeah, fantastic. Thanks very much, guys. Yeah, I've really enjoyed it. It's the 90th minute. All your mates around, you've got your McNuggets share boxes ready to go. Your mates already got booked for double dipping and you steal the last nugget, snatching all three points. Perfect. Order McDelivery now on the McDonald's app. You in? <whistles> At participating restaurants, 18 plus. Serving times, delivery free in terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. <laughs>